Amen. Man, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can turn there with me. And as we do, I want to, we, let, we uh, I kind of split this chapter in half. And so I'd like to just start right from verse 1 again and give us a little bit of a background here. And so let's read chapter uh, 11, verses 1 through 15. And then we'll continue on. It says this in chap- verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not the least, I'm not in the least inferior to all these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the God, God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their means. And so here in chapter 11, as we saw last week, and as I just want to remind you before we move on in this text, Paul introduces himself to us as a friend of the bridegroom, a friend of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the groom, and the scripture reveals to us that his bride that has been set apart to him is the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul, as this friend of the bridegroom, has this position of trust where he has been entrusted um, to look after the betrothed, the, the bride, the church of Christ, to look after her faithfulness to Jesus, to protect her from those who would seek to take advantage of her while she waits for the coming of her groom, Jesus Christ. And so as the friend of Jesus, Paul shares that he has this divine jealousy for the people of God. Not just jealous for them, but jealous, or sorry, not jealous of them, but jealous for them. Jealous that the hearts of God's people would be true to Jesus Christ. Jealous that the hearts of God's people would be faithful to Jesus Christ. See, as we talked about last week, Jesus Christ is the perfect fit for your heart. He is the perfect fit for your life. He is the perfect fit and God's solution and answer for all of humanity. And Jesus is jealous for your heart. And 
As one who served Jesus, Paul was jealous for and he feared for the hearts of God's people, feared that they would not be swayed from their pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. And so Paul introduced us, as we saw last week, to two ways by which Satan works using false teachers to subtly move God's people away from Christ. See, rarely, if ever, does Satan launch an all-out frontal attack on the people of God. He's much more sly than that. He uses his cunning. He's a master of disguise, as we see in this text. And so Paul tells us two ways that Satan subtly works to move the hearts of God's people away from Jesus Christ. The first one is this. He comes as a cunning serpent. He seeks to deceive the bride of Christ by this satanic seduction, suggesting that God's people need to add something to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, suggesting that there is something deeper that has to be explored, something more that needs to be experienced besides the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a cunning serpent, Satan comes and he twists the word of God. He attacks us in our mind like he did to Eve, seeking to corrupt the intellect, seeking to corrupt our thinking. It's, a, it's an intellectual deception that he tries to do to move God's people from the simplicity of the gospel. And our protection is this, to always stick to the simple gospel of the cross. Nothing needs to be added Nothing needs to be taken away. So Satan comes as a cunning serpent. But he also comes, his other mode is as a, to come as an angel of light. His second mode of subtle attack on the bride of Christ is this. It's disguise. To come in a disguise, like a masquerade ball. Satan seeks to deceive us by clothing himself in righteousness. All the outward appearances of good Teaching morality, promoting good works, promoting family, preaching religion. And thus he begins to move the hearts of God's people uh, towards this reliance on outward appearances rather than inward transformation. And so as the angel of light, Satan appeals to our humanity. He appeals to our humanity and he, he appeals to humankind's love of religion the love of the outward form of religion and he moves us towards religious form. And our protection is this, to remember that the work of God is defined as one thing. You know, I can't remember a lot of things, but Jesus said the work of God is one, I'm, one thing. One thing is the work of, not 50 things, not a hundred things, or not 23 things, not 11 things. One thing is the work of God. I can remember that. One thing, and it's this, that you believe on him whom the Father sent. Believe in Jesus Christ whom the Father sent. And, and any time that we seek to add to that one thing, we move into a dangerous place. And so Paul, identifying these two satanic methods, laying them bare, Uncovering the work of the false teachers in Corinth who were attacking him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. N not only did, did he expose, as we just read in, in verses 1 through 15, these, these methods that they used, 
But he also exposed them in this way. He says, I, I, I preach the gospel free of charge to you. And, and these guys, you know, they were, they were lining their wallets as they taught God's word to you. Now, as we come to verse 16, what's going to happen is this. Paul wants the conversation, I would say this. He wants the conversation to go to Jesus Christ. That's where he wants to focus on Jesus But the message about Jesus, this message that he's been teaching us all the way through 2 Corinthians about the ministry and about the work of the church and about giving and and about serving Christ and his heart for unreached people is hindered by something. And it's been hindered by this. It's been hindered by the church's disregard for Paul. This conflict that's existed between them. They've attacked his credentials. Was he a true apostle? Was he a true representative of Jesus? And so I would say this as we continue on in this text. Hesitant and reluctant, Paul is going to dive into a foolish speech here. And we're going to see the difference between Paul and his rivals. The the difference between Paul and and the false teachers is this, is that Paul admits before he even starts that what he is about to do is foolish. And they do not. You know, Paul is going to undercut these rivals uh, by boasting and using some irony about his own life. He, he's not going to boast about his glorious, well, he's going to boast a little bit about his glorious accomplishments. As they had. You know, they had, they were super apostles. They were walking around with big A's on their chest and letting everybody know it. But Paul, as he... Uh, begins to use some irony to attack them, what he's going to do this is he's going to recount a string of humiliating events in his life. Humiliating experiences that he says show that he is a better servant of Christ than them. Let's check it out. Verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. What I am saying with this What I am saying with this boastful boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. You know, the thing about boasting is this. When When most people enter into forms of human boasting and self promotion, We don't always, just it's our human nature, we don't always fully comprehend what we're doing and how we're trying to promote self. And typically, you know, when we begin these acts of self-promotion, inherent in uh, boasting about myself, I have to belittle other people. (laughs) It's just the case. I mean, so these apostles, these false apostles in... And their efforts to bring themselves to the forefront, what did they have? They had to belittle the life and the work and the ministry of Paul. And whenever we as human beings enter into this kind of human boasting, exaggeration always creeps in. The truth blurs. (laughs) And uh, self comes to the forefront. You know, years ago, Lisa and I were in this small group. We were in this small group for about four years in the city. And uh, there was all these young couples in our small group. We were all, we were all in our mid-20s, all kind of newlyweds. There was five or six couples. And over the four years that we were a part of this small group, the group underwent exponential growth because everybody was having babies. 
<laughs> there was like 10 babies born in like four years between these couples. And it was awesome. It was a really fun time for us. And there was one young couple in that group. The husband worked for a company that did private investigation work for ICBC. And so this was at the time when the liberals were coming back into power here in BC and they were uh, starting to tighten, tighten things up in our province. And um, his brother owned this PI firm and he was working for his brother. And as the government clamped down, they got their contracts started to get pulled. And, and this private investigation company that it had employed like 50 people was down to basically the point where they were in the verge of uh, almost going under. They were almost going under. It was, it was two partners and my friend left out of 50 people. And so in the course of all this, my, my buddy designed this new division of the company and he gave us an opportunity, all of us young couples, an opportunity to invest in. You know, it's one of these golden chances. Just $50,000 and you can buy in too. And uh, we were all young couples and only one of us had owned a home at that point and nobody had any money. And so nobody invested in, well, my, my buddy's company formed and took off and it became backcheck.ca. That just two years later, monster.ca tried to buy for nearly $15 million and they rejected them and they turned them down and it continues to flourish and do well. And he's ha I'm happy for him and I'm sad for myself. <laughs> But one of the things that was so funny as he started this, because they would do back checks on people applying for jobs. And I remember one particular story that he told us was this about some young guy barely in his 20s who on his resume claimed that he had played in the NHL for the Boston Bruins. And the number of years that he claimed to have spent in the NHL with the Bruins and his actual age were impossible. They didn't add up. And, you know, it's, it's just funny how when we begin to boast about self and work on self-promotion that the truth blurs. Well, when we consider what was happening in the church in Corinth, we realize that a sign of what was happening with the false teachers was this exaggeration, exaggeration and this sign of God's grace upon the life and ministry of Paul was this, is that the grace of God allowed him to speak truthfully about himself. You know, in terms of the work of the ministry and the life of the church, in terms of being amongst God's people, when we have this desire where we want to be better than others in terms of status, that's a foolish thing in the kingdom of God. Wanting to show ourselves as better than someone else, that's a foolish thing in the kingdom of God. And the grace of God on Paul's life was recognized that, that, he, that he saw self-promotion as a foolish, foolish thing. You know, again, as we've seen at other times in 2 Corinthians, our measuring stick is not one another. Our measuring stick is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the measuring stick that produces a heart of humility in the people of God. See, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is our common denominator. Sin levels the playing field and Jesus Christ is our only hope. 
And so as Paul enters further into this discussion, he clarifies that he is not speaking as the Lord would speak, but he's speaking as a fool to talk about the things of his life. Because the boast of the Christian is the cross. The boast of the church is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have received him and that we have believed on him. He is our boast. You know, where would I be if not for the unmerited favor of God? Where would we be if not for the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Where would you be but for Jesus? See, the real fools, those false teachers in Corinth, they boasted of their credentials, but their foolishness is going to become evident as Paul starts stating his own credentials as a true apostle. Now, what's an apostle? It's good just to remember this as we, as we move on in this text. What is an apostle? Well, an apostle is simply this, one who is sent on a mission from God. Okay, you, you could almost interchange the word missionary there to be sent. Now, Paul was uniquely an apostle, like the 12, like Peter or John, uh, like the 12 disciples. Paul was special in his mission that he had been personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. So he's got a unique thing going on from the Lord. So verse 20, check it out. For you bear, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. Now, now to me, I, I would say this. To me, this is the key verse of this text right here. If there's one you're going to underline, underline verse 20. And watch out for it in your life. Because I want to tell you what Galatians says. It says this in Galatians chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to the yoke of slavery. What does Paul say here in verse 20? For you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. See, Galatians chapter 5 also says this in verse 13 and 14. That you were called for freedom. You were called for freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, these Leaders that Paul was dealing with in Corinth, they, they, they understood power as something that one has when others become their compliant slaves. It's the power of coercion that they were using, not the power of the cross. You see, the enslaving power of coercion is the arm-twisting work of false teachers. It is the moral pressure of religion. It is the persuasion of cult groups. It is the sweet talk of the legalist. And it is not the work of Jesus Christ. See, Christ came to set you free. Free from the power and penalty of sin. Free to receive his gift of abundant life today. Free to receive his gift of eternal life. And Jesus does not resort to coercion. He doesn't arm twist or use tactics of human persuasion or sweet talk or manipulation because Jesus loves you. 
And love, everlasting, eternal love does not violate your right to choose. His love for you gives you the freedom to respond to the cross or to not respond to the cross. And when we choose Christ, what happens is this. We're not coerced into slavery. We willingly become his servants. See the difference? To be arm twisted into slavery, slavery or to become a willing servant. See, as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, our willingness to continually offer ourselves to Jesus grows. It deepens because we experience and know more and more his love and his goodness in our lives. False teachers and human works will not set you free as Jesus Christ does, but they will play on arm twisting. They will play on manipulation, sweet talk, persuasion, and they will coerce you into slavery and they will, they will violate your ability to offer yourself in love. They will force you into slavery. Now, the crazy thing about human nature is this. We put up with it. We put up with it. Paul says, for, for you bear with it. If someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on or strikes you in the face, you take it. See, these false teachers taught that they taught things in order to take advantage of God's people. Rather than set people free, they worked to reduce their right to choose. They worked to take advantage of the church and they were not acting in love. They taught the doctrine of slavery by promoting legalism, which is against the gospel of grace. They devoured the church like ravenous wolves, taking advantage of their rights and their position as leaders. They took advantage of God's people, like, like birds caught in a trap or like a fish caught in a net. They baited God's people with a hook and the church took it, Paul says. These men, they put on airs. They exalted themselves rather than Jesus Christ. And they did not even hesitate to strike God's people. To slap them in the face. To use embarrassment to keep them in tow and to keep them in line. See, the, these are the actions of, of unspiritual people. That is what Paul is saying. But the crazy thing is, is that the church had become so impressed by image the church had been so impressed by authority and by the power of these super apostles that, that they submitted themselves to this kind of treatment. Now, Paul says this about himself in verse 21. He says, to my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. See, the Corinthians thought Paul in his meekness was weak. When meekness is actually too, true strength, true power under control. Here Paul's saying, you know, I'm too weak to treat you like that. In other words, I love you too much for me to stoop myself to that. Verse 21 continues, he says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Now, before Paul really starts to get into this boast, He's, gonna, he's underscoring here that he's not boasting about things that are really worthy of his boasting. It, the things that he is about to say, you know, 
in a lot of ways proves nothing. Paul is not trying to make himself legitimate and legitimize his ministry by comparing himself to him with others. Again, he would compare himself only to Jesus Christ and then proclaim how far he, how far he falls short in comparison. And so with all that said, nevertheless, he, he's going to recognize, he's going to recognize and proclaim how God's power is working through him in the midst of his weakness. So let's check out Paul's boast, his foolish speech. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Here he goes, right? Okay. It's a madman speech. With far greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. That sounds exciting, Paul. Well, but Paul is saying this. Look, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. But he's mocking it. You got to catch that with Paul. Paul likes sarcasm. He, sarcasm's fun. He's using sarcasm and he's mocking the idea that we would claim our blood ancestry to make us servants, that that, that would make us servants of Christ. He's, he's saying, uh, come on. Really, it's our relationship to Jesus that makes us servants. Servants of Christ, he says, I am a better one. What he is saying is that, that these guys called them servants of Christ, but they attach to that picture of being a servant lots of honor and lots of privilege and lots of power. But the idea of a servant of Jesus Christ really literally means this, that you're a humble, menial worker, a servant it's not a title of exaltation. It is not a title of privilege. See, they may think of themselves as men sent on a mission, yet their mission never was to preach the gospel where Jesus had not been taught or was not known. But they worked to enhance their own reputation and following by building on another's foundation. These are arrogant, boastful attitudes that betray whom these men really serve themselves. Paul says, look, far greater labors in my life. Paul worked hard. <laughs> you know, I, I would say this, you know, serving Jesus does not mean that you have to work less and have others serve you more. <laughs> it means we work hard. Far more imprisonments. And when you flip through the book of Acts and, and read those accounts of the early church, we have to remember that that's not a comprehensive story. It's just highlights. Just sharing the highlights. It, it, it tells us of some imprisonments, but Paul says there were, there were others. There were far more imprisonments. There was countless beatings. How about that? I lost count. He lost count of how many times he took it. For Christ, often near death. Again, the book of Acts tells us that one, of one time in particular where Paul was stoned and the crowd in Lystra left him laying on the ground thinking that he was done for, that they had finished the job. Now, you know, I'm not sure if there's a diploma that you hang on your wall for all of these things. Uh, that you, you know, on the office wall, here's my triumphs for Christ, stoned and imprisoned and beaten countless times. And, but that is exactly Paul's point. 
that the proof of one's God-ordained training and education is not some diploma hanging on the wall or the ability to compose sermons or this or that, but it is the proper response of the believer to adversity that proves what's gone on in our hearts. See, Paul got up. He got up off the ground and he kept going for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would say this, if life, if people, or whatever life has thrown at you to knock you to the ground, get up, dear Christian. Get up. Get up. Shake it off. See, Paul did not allow these things to turn him into a victim. Here's my victim card. I got stoned. Here's my victim card. I got, he didn't, he didn't play that game. He was not crippled by life's blows because his eyes were set on Jesus Christ. You know, recently at our Wednesday night, uh, small group, there are 90 days through the Bible. We heard it. We heard it said from the, the DVD teaching that we were watching that, um, humans want life to be like a, a ride on a monorail. And I thought that was a good picture. You know, smooth, level, constant pace, no unexpected sharp turns, no steep drops, no big hill climbs. Just easy, peasy, lemon squeezy. But life is not a monorail. Life's a roller coaster. Have you noticed that about life? It's a roller coaster. And I'll tell you something about roller coasters. Roller coasters are fun, man. They are fun when you come at them with the right attitude. You know, the only time a roller coaster is not fun is when you think that you've stepped on a monorail. Then you got a problem. You know, when we went to Disney World in November, we, uh, we visited Hollywood Studios. And if you've been to Disneyland, it was our first experience as a family. So we were doing the fast pass thing. And we got this thing figured out how we could get our fast passes and just coordinate our time and make all the rides and we were rocking it. And so we went to Hollywood studios and boom, we rushed right away and we went and we got fast passes for uh, the Aerosmith rock and roll roller coaster. And um, there's five in my family. We had my mother-in-law with us and she's 76. So she's not going on there. So it means we've got an extra fast pass. We've got six fast passes. And my brother was there with his kids. And so I invited my little eight-year-old niece, Ivy, to come with us, the, f- the five of us in our family and Ivy to join us on the rock and roll roller coaster. Now, my kids, they're a little crazy. They're a little game for anything. My brother's kids are little girls and a little tame, and, and this, this is a new experience for them. And so, you know, we were a little bit nervous, but we thought, we'll just take her, okay? We'll just kind of keep it quiet. And so we began to meander through the line. And as we got into the process, uh, I don't know if you've been there, but uh, the lineup brings you along where the roller coaster, where people seat onto, seat, get seated into it. And they, the strap comes down over your shoulders and it pulls up into place. And then this countdown happens. And then, whoa, this thing takes off to like, I don't know how far, but you can barely, you, you can barely keep your breath. The G-forces are pushing you so hard back into your seat. And uh, so we're comforting little Ivy. Hey, Ivy, it'll be okay. 
thinking she's going to lose it. She says, does this roller coaster go upside down? Said, uh, um, well, we've never been on this roller coaster, so I guess we'll find out what it does. And, uh, boy, she was freaked out, and we went on that ride, and she came out going, yeah, that was awesome. We got to do that again. It was so cool. And you know what? Uh, life is a roller coaster. And so I want to encourage you, Christian, don't expect a monorail because you'll be surprised and you'll be disappointed. And I want to encourage you, you know, if life has left you beaten up, if it's left you bruised, you need to know something, that Jesus Christ is present. And his word says that a bruised reed, he does not break, and a smoldering wick, he doesn't snuff it out. See, Jesus won't break you, and Jesus won't snuff you out. Jesus loves you. And when you call on him, he will help you get back up onto your feet. See, the scripture says that when a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. See, that's the beauty of the body of, the Christ, of, the body of Christ, the church. Because <laughs> we have people around us to help us get back up. We don't use people's beatings and bruisings from life to gain control over them or to coerce them to become our little minions and slaves to gain power over people. Rather, we point one another to Jesus Christ and we say, get up. Let's keep going. Let's keep our focus on Christ. Verse 24, Paul says this. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews... 40 lashes less one. How many is that? 195 lashes. A single beating was restricted to 39 lashes in Jewish culture because the, the law said that you couldn't, you could only beat a man, you could only lash him 40 times. And so just in case they got the count wrong, they would say 39. <laughs> just, you know, don't want to get too legalistic while we're beating the man. And and five times, Paul had that reception from the Jews. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. See, the book of Acts, if you go through it and, and you, you count it up, it, it recounts no less than 18 journeys Paul took by ship during his missions work. And, and who knows how many others there were that aren't accounted for. Because Acts certainly doesn't tell all the details of all these shipwrecks, three shipwrecks. You know, as I was reading some, you know, for you boaters out there, I, got, I, got, I found something kind of cool as I was just reading this week. And it was a, a conversation that's recorded in the history books that happened between the Emperor Hadrian and the philosopher Secundus. Hadrian asked Secundus, he said this, what is a boat? And his response it was that a boat is a sea-tossed object, a foundationless home, a well-crafted tomb, a wooden cubicle, a flying prison, a confined fate, a plaything of the wind, that it's sailing death on an open, with, in an open cage, that it's uncertain safety, that it's the prospect of death. So Hadrian said, well, what's a sailor? And he said, a sailor is a neighbor of death. <laughs> you know, 
Certainly, the, the sea has been defined as a large body of water surrounded by trouble. And Paul's shipwreck accounts in, in carrying the gospel to far-off lands testify uh, to the truth. You don't know what the sea's going to give you ever. See, Paul paid the price to serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 26. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst and often without food, in cold and exposure. It's hard to wrap your head around this, isn't it? All that Paul suffered for the sake of Jesus, especially in our cushy little community with our good drinking water and our cushy church and our cushy chairs. You know, we sniffle when someone mocks us for following Jesus Christ or mocks the name of Jesus. You wimps. <laughs> We're wimps. We're wimps. You know, let me ask you something. And I'm not trying to coerce you into anything. But an honest question that we should ask ourselves. What has it cost you to follow Jesus Christ? What has it cost you to follow Jesus Christ and the mission of the gospel? Because if you're not sure what it's cost you, it's time that you take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I in the faith? It costs to follow Jesus Christ. Now here's the clincher for Paul as he shares what it cost him. All the things that he's just shared. Here's the clincher, verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. See, Paul, in spite of all these physical things that were happening on the outside and experience, Paul lived with a burden. You could take Paul's shirt off and you could count the scars on his back. I'm sure that you could look at his face and see the evidence of the stones that had struck him. But there was a burden that Paul carried that was heavier than all of those things. A burden that the eye could not observe. Something on the inside and it was his deep concern for the people of God. His deep concern for the church. Even with the ups and downs of the roller coaster, with the highest of heights as he planted churches and traveled the world, with the lowest of lows as he was beaten with rods and whipped and whatever, he served the bride of Christ and he sought to see many come into the family of Jesus Christ. See, Paul, as he tells us at the start of this whole chapter, wanted nothing to steal and rob the bride of her pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul had a godly jealousy for the church. He loved the church. And it put a daily pressure on him. It filled his heart and his life with anxiety. 
But the pressure didn't crush him. The pressure motivated him. The pressure motivated him to serve Jesus and to serve the gospel. He says this in verse 29. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? See, Paul suffered as other, others suffered. He, but, but he set his eyes on Jesus Christ and on the finish line and he knew what his life was about. He says this in verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. See, the, these boasts that Paul is, is making make the point that his endurance of hardship reveals that he is true. His endurance of hardship reveals that he is no weakling but that he is called by God to proclaim the gospel. The weakness proves the power of God evident in his life and ministry. The, these boasts and his ability to get up and to keep going show that he is a man called of God. He's a great example to us. Get up and keep going for Jesus Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Verse 32, he says this, At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. See, Paul says this, I'm a gospel basket case. <laughs> you know, as Paul references back to this time, he's going all the way back to the first few days of his salvation experience and coming to know Jesus Christ. Paul had been sent to Damascus, as we know from the book of Acts, by leaders, by Jewish leaders. He, he had been commissioned and given the power, given human power and human authority to go to Damascus and to arrest Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem and to prosecute them. And we know that Paul stood by while Christians were killed. At least one for sure. And Paul went to Damascus full of man's power, full of man's authority, and it was his goal to arrest and imprison followers of Jesus Christ. What happened to Paul? We know what happened to Paul. On that road, on his way to Damascus, he became a basket case for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of Jesus, he met Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. And he went into that city where he was going to arrest people and he proclaimed Christ. And he proclaimed the truth of the gospel until he had to escape in fear for his life. And you know, this event from the very beginning of Paul's ministry emphasizes how God worked right from the very start in him through his human weakness and through his human frailty. You know, if we contrast this man who was called Saul before he knew Jesus to the man who became Paul the apostle, Acts chapter 9 again tells us that he went full of man's power and authority, full of human authority. But after that Damascus Road experience, Paul was a changed man. You know, where he came to that city with, 
with human power and authority, he left humbly in a basket. Is there anything more humble than being let out a window, down a wall, escaping, hiding in a basket? There's no dignity in that. And you should see the humor and laugh with him as he tells us that he is a basket case. (laughs) You know, one commentator made this interesting case that this is, uh, that Paul was playing on something that was well known in their culture, a Roman thing that was known within their culture. See, the Romans had a certain badge of honor and courage that was given amongst their soldiers. It was called the wall crown, the corona moralis. It was one of the highest Roman military honors that could be given to a soldier. And it was given and presented to the first soldier who attacked an enemy city and went up over the wall into the city. The Romans fashioned this award of gold and they formed it to look like a turreted wall of a fortified city. And and under the Roman Empire, not a, reg- a regular soldier could not receive this re- reward. You, you had to be at least a centurion to get this. It, it was a very high reward. And this one commentator suggested that the contrast between Paul's cowering descent in a basket out of the city as compared to the ascent of the wall by a courageous soldier would not have been lost by the the readers of that day. The Corinthians would have understood. And so Paul is describing to these people a reversal of military bravery. It's another story of his humiliation. It's another story of his weakness for the sake of the gospel. See, Paul's ministry began and continued with an emphasis on his human weakness but also on the manifest power of God through Jesus Christ when we serve him in our frailty. See, Jesus Christ loves to express himself through human weakness. You know, when we are at our weakest, from that place, Jesus Christ can be his strongest. Life's a roller coaster. Hang on. Hang on. When you get knocked down, get back up. Focus on the cross. Serve Jesus Christ in your weakness and don't apologize for it. Amen? Amen.